0: You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching is lesson number two from Gentle and Lowly, covering chapters three through five. Well, happy fall. (laughs) Well, officially autumn begins at 9.04 p.m. tonight. So when you left home, it was summer, and when you get home and are tucked in, you might want to turn the fireplace on because it will be autumn! Woohoo! I hope it was a great week for you. It was a great and busy week for me. I'm Bev Mahoney. I've been at LEFC now for about four years, which was when I moved into the area. So I'm really thrilled to have this honor to talk with you tonight. Let's continue on our journey as we talk with Dr. Ortland and the colleagues who inspired him to share the nature of our gentle and lowly Jesus with us. If you think about it, the lifetime span across the millennia from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah in the sixth and eighth centuries, to the apostles John and Paul in the first century AD, then fast forward to Sibbs, Goodwin, Owen, Bunyan during the 16th and 17th centuries, then Edwards in the 18th century, Spurgeon and Warfield in the 19th century, and now to Ortland, 21st century. That is quite an impressive group to caravan with. You may remember that on our first night I teased you a little bit about our switch from the type of inductive studies that we do every spring um, to use a commentary for our primary study. Well, now that we have that behind us, here's the beautiful news. We get to travel these 11 weeks with those men who walked so closely with Jesus, who spent their lives either prophesying about Him, traveling with Him or near Him, or studying his life and sharing their knowledge of scripture with us. What an opportunity. So as we begin, please pray with me. Father God, we come to you this evening knowing we are blessed to be living in this time and place that you put us together here to get to know your Son in a wondrous way. Please help me, Lord, to convey your message with clarity and help us all to focus, to put aside any distractions, and be open to our gentle and lowly Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, Pam beautifully described Jesus' heart for us, and this week we're launching into our exploration of how his heart reaches out to ours. A minimalist could probably sum up lesson two in three words, happiness, sympathize, and gently. But... Thank you. Just to use those three words would be like describing a sunrise you witnessed like this. I saw pink and orange and gold. Well it's accurate but woefully inadequate to describe the depth, the variety of colors, the fresh morning air, the sense and feeling you get that all of God's universe shouts out his glory. So for tonight I'm not going to be able to hit that but I would like to share some examples of how these three words showed me Jesus in a new way. We'll think about happiness first, and then because they complement each other, we'll visit, sympathize, and deal gently together. Ortland pointed out that these chapters rely heavily on the powerful book of Hebrews. And the first is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Goodwin noted, quote, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth unquote. I'm not certain how that struck you, but the concept that my bringing him the worst that I am is going to, just with the flow of his own deepest wishes, bring him joy and comfort. It caught me off guard. We know his commands and desires that we confess our sins and repent, but I don't think I ever viewed that interaction with Christ as being joyful for him. I just didn't get the happiness part of it. Happy sounds like a pretty tall order for a perfect savior dealing with sinful people. Allow me to take a minute and introduce to you Ida Scudder. She was a real-life example of the fictitious scenario that Ortland provided. Born in 1870, she was the granddaughter of the first American medical missionary and daughter of his son, Dr. John Scudder, who along with his wife were missionaries in India. Ida's story is too long for a limited time, but for our purposes, she had resolved as a young woman never to permanently live in India, never to become a missionary, and never to become a physician. Yeah, you guessed it. <laughs> through, through a series of divine God incidences, not only did she become a missionary, but also a physician living in India for the rest of her life. Who, and she endured much for the Gospel and spent her years improving the lives of Indian women and men. Her obedience to God and her steadfast faith through that, through Him, all things are possible, led to establishing a school of nursing, a thriving hospital, a medical school, clinics, and much more, before her death in 1960. That would have made her 90 years old. Um, all of that to bring the Gospel to the hurting. Peeking in on her as a young, newly minted physician reveals that Ida had been called back to India because her mother was ill. Her father operated a busy clinic and Ida was just getting settled in her role of assisting and learning from him when he suddenly passed away. She was devastated and couldn't bring herself to even attempt to reopen his clinic alone. Finally, she decided to open a modest clinic in her mother's home. She was excited to treat patients. Her preparation had involved many, many years, much effort and dedication. Her biography records, on the first morning, Ida had everything ready by 8 o'clock. She waited until noon, but no one came, nor did anyone the next day or the day after that. Two weeks went by, and not a single patient showed up. She was ready. Her greatest desire was to treat their illnesses, but no one came. She cried herself to sleep many nights. Finally, one woman came. Ida diagnosed her with conjunctivitis and sent her home with treatment. She was so excited she never even learned her name and was fearful she would not return for follow-up. But she did. Ida was ecstatic. She wasn't happy that the woman was ill but she longed to have someone to acknowledge a need for what she could do, how she could improve their lives. Her heart filled with joy. It was the joy of doing what she was meant to do. That's how you can get excited for people when they bring their worst to you. That's what Goodwin and Ortland both embraced. Jesus is joyful when we come to him. No matter how torn and battered we are, Jesus devoted his earthly life, his death and resurrection to providing a way for human beings to spend eternity in his presence. He was and is ready to forgive those who confess and repent, who give their lives to him. It's who he is. Goodwin and Ortland clarified, quote, as truly God, Christ cannot become any more full. He shares his Father's immortal, eternal, unchangeable fullness, yet as truly man, Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joy and ours rise and fall together. Then Ortland asks, is this biblical? Did you catch that question? It's a great question. Watch for it again and again as we travel through his book filled with wonderful scripture. That's why we have it on the beginning of the book for you. <laughs> Listen again to Hebrews 12:2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The New Living Translation says, "We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith." Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. I believe that sometimes Jesus' seat at the right hand of the Father gets overlooked or not understood as the powerful, sacred position it is. Or what it means, the Apostles' Creed confirms that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father is the affirmation that his work as fully man on on earth is completed, the one who made purification for our sins once and for all, our high priest representing us to God and God to us, the reconnection between heaven and earth, The head of the body he nourishes and cherishes, the one who gave all to joyfully be with us forever. So from where is he sympathizing and dealing gently? From the right hand of God the Father and simultaneously through his spirit in you and me. As we move on, I'm going to take what I call a semantic detour. I have a reputation for being a little bit nerdy at times, so if you aren't interested in this, I apologize, but I had to share it. When I encountered the word sympathize, as it's used here, and then read Ortland's description of the word, I was very confused. I wrote in the margin, sympathize, two question marks. In my mind, Ortland should have been saying empathize. I imagine that thought might have occurred to some of you along the way. As a nurse, I could feel sympathy for the plight of my patients, but not always true empathy unless I had lived the same or a similar experience, unless I had suffered that sadness or anxiety or pain myself. But scripture is inerrant, divinely inspired, so what exactly did the word sympathy mean, and where was the empathy? Upon further research, here's what I discovered. The Greek word, empathia, actually means are you ready for this? To have ill feelings, unhealthy passion, animosity toward others, a deep-seated feeling of dislike, uh, aversion, repugnance. It's the opposite of sympathy. I learned that I can't make assumptions about ancient language root words. Because we do have a word called empathy in the English language, right? In English, empathy does mean compassion, an ability to share another person's feelings and emotions as if they were your own. The writer of Hebrews used the, the Greek word sympathi. Translated simply correctly conveys the meaning. Jesus co-suffers with us in our distress. It's an aspect of his solidarity with us, his unrestrained witness, as Ortland said. Let's move on to sympathize and deal gently in tandem. Hebrews four fourteen to sixteen says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every spe- respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then Hebrews 5, one to two, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Jesus is fully God and experienced life here as fully man. As I soaked in Ortland's message, I thought about how I rely on Jesus. When I was young, I just knew that he was in my heart. In my sinfulness, however, I didn't really consider or even comprehend that he's as close to me now as he was to those who knew him and walked the earth with him. Dear sisters, he is never far from you. He endured everything you have endured and more and deeper and longer. He knows and he can sympathize, yes, sympathize, when we experience loss and pain. It leaves an indelible mark, it becomes part of our lives. Down the road, when someone else is confronted with a similar situation, are we not better equipped to help that person, to feel her pain, to know? That's who Jesus is, always with us, ready and waiting to comfort. He is our rock and fortress in times of trouble. Exactly 37 years ago today, strangely enough, a spectacular autumn day in northern Vermont, my phone rang. I heard one of my husband's staff members say, quote, Jack's dead, unquote. Considering the fact that I had kissed my husband, Jack, goodbye as he left for a conference two days earlier, and we talked on the phone about 24 hours after that, I was shocked. Part of me was suddenly and irrevocably torn away. The details of that day aren't important for our purposes, but what I want to share with you is that that moment and in the ensuing days, I did not look to Jesus to comfort me in my suffering. I just tried to take care of everyone else. A thousand details. I was now a widowed mom with six son, two sons and 6 stepsons, a full-time 11 to 7 job, and a gift shop to run. I wasn't angry at God. I just didn't think about the fact that He cared for me and He wanted to show His compassion. I tried to do it on my own. He was there with me, but I looked in other directions. Fast forward to 11 years ago, well, exactly 11 years and 13 days ago, on an equally stunning fall morning, now in Virginia, I received another phone call and learned that my then 38-year-old son, Jeremy, had taken his own life. Again, the details are not important, but the intervening two and a half decades between Jack's death and Jeremy's death, the Lord was faithful, revealing himself anew to me, and I had been in his word like never before. As James 4 assures us, I drew closer to him, and he drew closer to me. This time, at Jeremy's death, I knew Jesus was there for me and with me. He hurt with me, he sympathized with me, as he has done before, only this time I knew I was weak and he was strong. I told him over and over and over again that I trusted in him, I trusted him, I trusted in him, I trusted him. And he held me. He himself had been beset with weakness, human weaknesses, but he was sinlessly weak as he walked the earth. He was and is able to deal gently with me and with you. I could, as Ortland said, feel his heartbeat. You know, one of the first things I learned in nursing school was how to take vital signs, and you may or may not know this, but temperature, pulse, and respirations. Did you know that when someone takes your pulse, they're also counting your respirations, they're listening to and assessing your breathing? Your very breath. Ortland's picture gave me that realization. Jesus is so close, we can Feel his heartbeat and his breath. Think about that gift that you can give. His heart, who he is, renders him not unable to sympathize. And he gently deals with you. He walks with you and carries you. And then, at some point, you, very naturally, will on a human level do that for others. Walk with them and be there. Just be there. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, my Savior, thank you that you love us so dearly and comfort us, and seated at the right hand of the Father, intercede for us. Thank you that your Holy Spirit lives in us. Your compassion blankets us with your peace, and we have hope. May all we do and say be glorifying to you in your precious name, amen.